Hey, I just wanted to leave a question for the Educate podcast. We've been getting a lot of questions this fall about our reporting on reading, about how schools teach kids to read and what happens when they don't. The way I was taught, in quotes, to read was to look at the words on the page and to guess based on the picture that was next to them. APM Reports correspondent Emily Hanford has spent years diving into this subject. The groundbreaking documentaries Emily has produced have ignited a national conversation about how schools teach reading. Emily's gotten hundreds of responses from parents who are wondering how to help their kids learn to read. She's heard from teachers who are trying to learn the science behind teaching kids to read. She's heard from adults who struggled with reading when they were kids, and many of them are still struggling today. So we asked Emily to sit down and answer some questions. From APM Reports, this is the Educate Podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. For this episode of the podcast, we invited listeners to send in questions for Emily Hanford on Facebook, Twitter, email, and over the phone. All right, I'm I'm rolling, unless you want me to do a countdown or something. Nope. Go ahead. Okie doke. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. One of the things that might be interesting for listeners is to hear about how you got interested in reading in the first place. Where did all of this start? Well, uh, as you know, in this work that we do, uh, one story often leads to another. That's the way it's been for me in the 11 years that I've been reporting on education here at APM. So to get back to how I stumbled upon this reading thing, we have to go back to 2015-2016 when I was reporting on remedial education in college. Uh, we did a piece called Stuck at Square One, The Remedial Education Trap. And for that piece, I was investigating why more than 40% of college students end up in what are known as remedial or developmental classes in college. Basically, they graduate from high school, they go to college, and they're told, you're not ready for college-level work. You need to take these remedial classes first. And most of the students who end up in these remedial classes don't end up getting a college degree, which is one of the reasons why this really matters. So as I was doing this reporting um, for this project on remedial education, I met some students who told me they had dyslexia. And I knew nothing about dyslexia. I have no personal experience with it, no familial experience. I, I hadn't come across it in reporting before that I knew of. And what I was hearing from these students who told me they had dyslexia is that they never got good help with their reading problems when they were in elementary school or when they were in high school. In fact, their dyslexia hadn't even been like identified or acknowledged in school. And I was just really curious about why. And that started me on this quest to understand more about dyslexia. Dyslexia, the term is, uh, is based on Greek, right? Lexia meaning words? Exactly. And so dyslexia means you have trouble with words. What did you learn about it? Well, dyslexia opened up kind of this um, Pandora's box about reading that's kept me going now for the better part of the last three years. So I started making a bunch of phone calls to try to understand uh, if this was a problem, if kids with dyslexia were not getting the help they need in school, like these students in these remedial classes were telling me. And I was, um, I was hearing the same story over and over again from parents all over the country, and I've really never had this experience as a reporter before. Like, I was hearing the same stories, like, same phrases, same places in the story where the parents broke down crying when they were telling me about this. And the story that I was hearing everywhere was basically this. Uh, the parents knew that something wasn't really right with their kid. Uh, he or she was struggling with reading right off the bat, starting in kindergarten. 
Uh, but the teachers and the administrators, everyone at the school kept saying, everything's fine. Every child learns differently. Your kid's going to get it eventually. But the kid wasn't really getting it. And so like first grade, second grade, third grade, the parents would be saying to the school, something's wrong here. My kid really can't read. And the school kept saying, everything's fine. There's nothing wrong with your kid. We're doing the best we can. We just got to find him the right book. Don't worry about it. And eventually, if the parents have time and especially money, what happens is they often take things into their own hands. So they pay for private testing, which might cost thousands of dollars. They might pay for private tutoring, which might be more thousands of dollars. Some parents I talked to even hired lawyers and educational consultants to kind of fight for what they thought their kid needed in public school. And a lot of these parents even ended up taking their kids out of public school altogether and enrolling them in specialized private schools that are designed for kids with dyslexia. And that is many, many more thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to put your kid in a private school. But finally, all these years and thousands of dollars later, what these parents find is their kid is finally learning to read. And as one mom put it to me, getting what you need for a kid with dyslexia is a rich man's game. And I found that to be a very stunning statement and it really got me thinking because, as you know, our education reporting here at APM Reports has always been focused on questions uh, about equity in education and the ways that family income and poverty in particular affect educational opportunities and educational outcomes. And what I was finding in this reporting on dyslexia is that there's, at, at root, this is really an equity issue. Parents with means can, at the end of the day, most of the time, get the help they need to make sure their children learn to read. But what do you do if you don't have the money to pay for private tutors in private school? If you're from a low-income family, even a moderate-income family, there's often, like, no backup. There's no safety net if you're not learning to read in school. And what I really came to understand is that if you're not learning to read in school, it means you're probably not being taught to read in school. And let's go a bit deeper. What else did you discover about dyslexia and reading? Yeah, so I, as I was reporting on dyslexia for the documentary that we made in 2017, which is called Hard to Read, I started to learn about the science of reading. Uh, I credit the moms of kids with dyslexia for introducing me to this, this research, which I really knew nothing about. And when I say this term, the science of reading, what I am specifically referring to is this huge mountain of evidence that's been accumulating over the past few decades from research by cognitive scientists and others that shows really quite clearly like how skilled reading works, uh, what kids need to learn to become skilled readers, and what's going on when kids are struggling to learn to read. And what this research shows is that what kids with dyslexia need to learn to become good readers is not substantially different from what all people need to learn to become good readers. Kids who have dyslexia might need a more like intense dose of a certain kind of instruction, but all kids benefit from the kind of instruction that kids with dyslexia desperately need. But this research about reading, this, this mountain of cognitive science evidence, is not well known in schools. In fact, what I learned in my reporting is that not only are teachers and administrators not, for the most part, learning about the science in their preparation programs or in their professional development, but educators are actually sometimes being taught stuff about reading that is at odds with what the scientific research says. So this is what I investigated uh, in our 2018 documentary, Hard Words, and uh, more in our most recent program, At a Loss for Words. I want to talk about that program in a moment, but... 
It's my experience doing this work, and it might be yours as well, that a lot of cognitive science research doesn't seem to make its way into America's classrooms. Is that is that your impression as well? That is certainly my take as a reporter, and it's one of the things I've been interested in for years is, like, how do people learn? What have cognitive scientists figured out about that, and how is it making its way into classrooms or not? Which I think is why I was so interested in this reading issue when I stumbled upon it, uh, because of the equity issue, which I've been interested in for years, and because of this question of how people learn and cognitive science and whether or not that is being used in education. Those two things have been so interesting to me for a long time, and it all came together with this early reading instruction issue. We'll uh, get to some of the questions that listeners and readers sent in. But first, tell us what you discovered in your reporting uh, for that most recent program you mentioned, At a Loss for Words. What were the big takeaways from that? Well, as most people probably know, we there's, there's a lot of arguments about reading. Uh, we've been arguing for a long time about reading. And one of the things that we argue about really intensely is phonics, phonics instruction, and whether kids need to be explicitly taught how to read words or whether reading is basically uh, a natural process and that as long as kids are surrounded by good books and they're motivated to read, they will eventually learn how to read. And the scientific research that's been done over the past few decades has revealed that learning to read is not natural. We are, we're not born wired to read. But, and this is fascinating, even though we're not born with brains that are designed for reading, we can actually get really, really good at it. And one of the things uh, that scientists have discovered, one of the most basic takeaways, is that our brains get good at reading by understanding how the speech sounds and words are represented by letters. So if you direct a child's attention to the sound structure of language, it actually optimizes activity in the area of the brain that it turns out helps them become good readers. And when they start to integrate the the sounds and spoken words with the letter patterns of those words, they actually rewire their brains a bit. And phonics is is that sounding out, right? Exactly. I mean, so what scientists have basically discovered is that you need phonics skills to become a good reader. I mean, having good phonics skills is not enough. It's not all you need, but it is an essential building block to becoming a good reader. And I think what's happened is that this evidence uh, about the importance of phonics has slowly been making its way into schools and into publishing companies that design curriculum. And phonics instruction, which was once considered unnecessary uh, and even harmful by some educators and some literacy experts, it's now increasingly becoming part of what schools are teaching. So most schools, not all, but most schools seem to do some kind of phonics instruction or word work as part of their reading instruction. And I think that's because if you're a publisher or a curriculum developer and you don't include phonics instruction at this point in 2019, you really kind of can't with a straight face call your materials research-based. I mean, there's so much research about the importance of phonics. But what I found in my reporting for this most recent documentary is that just because a publisher or a school adds some phonics instruction, it does not mean that reading instruction is actually in line with all of that cognitive science on reading. What I've discovered is that there are a whole bunch of like outdated and disproven ideas about how kids learn to read words, and they're all over the place in American schools, and they're all over the place in curriculum materials that are widely used. And I found that this disproven idea about reading that's all over the place in American schools, it's actually making it harder for many kids to learn how to read. 
So we can get into that a little bit more in our Q&A, but let's get to some of the questions we got from readers and listeners. Sure. So here's a question via Twitter from a doctoral student who is doing research on how teachers are prepared to teach reading. She asks, have you encountered any resistance to your reporting? What are the professional roles of people opposing your reporting, and what are their stated reasons? Huh. Well, the Hard Words documentary from 2018, uh, as I just said, focused a lot on the importance of phonics instruction. And in particular, I was trying to explain why phonics is so important. And I think one reason we fought about phonics for so long is that no one really knew why phonics mattered, and now we do know. So the scientific research is really, really clear that you know, while we use our eyes to read, the starting point for reading is sound, and kids need to understand the speech sounds and words, and they need to understand how all those words um, are represented in English spelling. So in response to hard words, I did hear from a number of people who remain skeptical about the importance of phonics instruction. Some of these people are people who have published on this topic over the years, who've kind of made a case for why it isn't necessary to teach phonics. Uh, they have built a reputation, I think, on a point of view that I was raising questions about. So I heard I heard from some of those people. Um, I heard from people who were a bit taken aback or even insulted, I think, by my finding that most teacher preparation programs are not actually teaching the science of reading. I heard from some professors in colleges of education who uh, questioned this science of reading and who questioned the efficacy of phonics instruction. So that was definitely one source of, of resistance, I would say, to the reporting. People who have some kind of skin in the game with notions about how reading works that have not held up that well as the scientific evidence has accumulated over the years. What's interesting is that I was expecting a lot of pushback on this most recent piece, and I I haven't heard as much from some of those familiar critics in the wake of this most recent piece. From what I'm seeing anyway, like across my social media feeds and in my inbox, I would say I'm kind of getting less critique, less pushback than I was last year. Other people are telling me the opposite. <laughs> They're seeing pushback on their social media feeds. I don't really know why I'm seeing less pushback on this most recent program. I think it actually raised some deeper, more profound and difficult questions about the state of early reading instruction. Maybe that's why I'm not hearing as much. I don't know. What I Well, you might be hearing more after this. <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> I guess maybe they haven't made their voices loud and clear. Um. You know, what I am getting this year that is a bit different from last year when Hard Words came out, I'm getting a lot of private messages on Twitter. It's really interesting. Like I wake up in the morning and I always have some private messages and I'm getting a lot of emails from people who tell me they want to tell me this thing, but they don't want me to use their name. They don't want to go public with their reactions to the reporting. And some of these notes have been kind of chilling. I, I brought one of them. Good Lord. I mean, I mean, this is about reading. I know. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about theories of reading, and people are afraid to speak out. Yes. Huh. They are. Okay. I'll, I'll well, so you, you brought a note, you say. Yeah, yeah. So I got this. Here, here's a note I got from an educator. This was this was via email. In her note, she's going to refute. Uh, she's going to refer to balanced literacy, which uh, is is basically an approach to teaching reading that sort of essentially evolved out of that idea I was talking about earlier, that learning to read is basically a natural process and that the key is to give children access to lots of books and motivate them to want to read and and that way they'll learn how to do it. So balanced literacy sort of evolved from that point of view. So she, she refers to this term and she also refu uh, refers to the queuing system, which is uh, 
a, a disproven theory about reading that I focus on in a loss for words. So anyway, here's what uh, this educator wrote to me. She wrote, there is something that I don't see being discussed publicly, fear, exclamation point. I am a literacy leader in a very balanced literacy state. I am reflecting on two discussions around professional development I had yesterday with coaches. I realized we were whispering and checking the door. I imagine I am not the only leader struggling this way. We're training with explicit systematic phonics and phonemic awareness instruction, but we don't feel safe to clearly state that we must stop teaching the cueing system. If we leave the cueing system in place, it's futile, but we're scared. We need our jobs and have worked hard to get to this level professionally. Schools can close the door on me any day if I don't align with their goals and initiatives. Please consider this anonymous. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, one thing I want to get to and before we go to the next, uh, the next issue uh, is when you say that the brain, our brains are not designed to naturally learn reading, is that an evolutionary thing? I mean, I would assume that we're naturally, that we're designed to be able to speak and to learn from speech. But reading, I mean, reading is a, you know, as a species is a fairly recent phenomenon. It's a modern invention. <laughs> it's it's really recent. In the course of human history, we just kind of invented the whole reading and writing thing a little while ago. So it's just that our brains aren't evolved to do it. Uh, we have an interesting interview with a neuroscientist that is on the hard to read page, and she talks about this. I mean, we're evolved to see objects, um, and we kind of use some of those things that we use for object recognition to learn how to read. Uh, but we also really incorporate the, the sounds, like speech is natural. We've been talking for a long time. And if you surround a kid with speaking, unless she has some sort of major cognitive deficit or she can't hear very well, uh, she will learn to talk, but it's not necessarily enough to surround a kid with good books. There's a lot of kids who are not going to pick it up. Some kids need much more instruction than others, but the basic finding is that it's something we need to learn to do, and most kids need to be taught. So what other kinds of notes have you been getting? Well, I've, got, I've gotten a lot of emails that are a little bit like the one I just read to you. So teachers and other educators and parents telling me that when they raise questions about a school's approach to reading instruction. They get a lot of resistance. Uh, they even get reprimanded. And in a few cases, I've gotten notes from people who've told me that they've been pushed out of their jobs for raising questions about reading instruction. Um, you know, I mean, and, and why is this? Well, I've, I've asked some of these people. <laughs> and what I'm hearing from them is that when it comes to how schools are teaching reading, there's a lot of money on the line. Uh, there's a lot of pride on the line. There are a lot of reasons for schools and school districts to resist change in this area. And like you said early, this is reading. It seems so fundamental. Don't we want to get this right? But I think it's it's difficult if schools have been sort of on one path for a long time and along comes someone who says, uh, no, no, uh, there's all this other evidence that says we should be doing things a little bit differently. And they're like, oh, no, we didn't know about this evidence. And as one person put it on Twitter, Sunk cost bias is real. Sunk cost bias? Yeah, so that's what economists, when you've, when you've already paid for something, both in real money in terms of curriculum materials, or you can think of sunk costs in terms of training and beliefs and what people know, right? We've sunk a lot of investment into certain ideas about the way reading works and the way that kids should be taught. And when you've invested in one way of doing things, there, 
there are actually a lot of reasons to kind of keep doing, doing things the same way. And change is hard. And, and for schools, it can actually be very expensive in terms of time and actual dollars. Well, this gets us to another question that came in via Twitter. Kendra says she is a reading specialist and a literacy coach who works with students who have dyslexia. She says it took her years to learn all she needed to know about the science of reading. And she asks, how do you get teachers to shift the way they've been taught to think about how reading is taught and how it's learned? I get a version of that question from people all the time. You know, as a journalist, I, I believe very deeply in the power of knowledge and information. And it, it seems to me that one reason we're in the situation we're in with reading instruction right now in this country is that a lot of people in education just do not know about the scientific research on reading. This is what teachers tell me all the time. I, I didn't know. And these teachers tell me that once they begin to learn about the research, a whole lot of things start to click into place for them. Like many of them have admitted to me that they'd had a bit of a concern, like a pit in their stomach for years about the fact that they always had a bunch of students, maybe even a lot of students, who were struggling with reading and, and they knew the instruction wasn't really working, but they didn't really know what else to do. They were doing everything they were told to do. I mean, teachers are basically doing the best they can with what they've been taught. Uh, this is what I'm finding over and over again in my reporting. And it's become a bit of a cliche now in this sort of world of conversation about reading. But when they know better, they do better. Uh, that's what teachers tell me all the time, or at least they want to do better. I mean, I, I have never met a kindergarten or first grade teacher or any teacher who didn't want to teach her students how to read. So I... I guess I really think that change begins with knowledge. I'll just put my foot there strongly as a journalist. Um, I'm hearing from people all over the country that our reporting on this topic has actually opened their eyes to stuff that they just didn't know. And many of these people are like boldly jumping in. I've heard from superintendents, from principals who tell me that they're changing the way their schools teach reading because of our reporting. And just last night, I actually heard from someone who is a professor in a graduate program for educators who told me that they are, this is a quote, transitioning our program to full reading science this spring <laughs> because of our hard words documentary. So I think knowledge, uh, information, it's a bold thing to say in 2019, but facts and knowledge, I think, can spur real change. And if you're looking for, you know, resources to share with colleagues to kind of spread this knowledge, uh, we have a whole lot of stuff on uh, the web versions of our reading stories online. We've actually collected all of them at one website. It's apmreports.org backslash reading. And in this most recent one, Lost for Words, we, we have like extensive footnotes that have links to research and lots of uh, articles and stuff. And we have resource lists at the bottom of the websites for the other uh, two documentaries about reading, too. But I also think this is what I hear from teachers all the time is knowledge matters. I, I think it, this all begins with knowledge, but I don't know that that is enough. I mean, teachers across the country are telling me that they need more than knowledge. Uh, they need guidance on how to actually put this into practice. Uh, they need coaching. They need like ongoing help. They need good curriculum materials. And perhaps most of all, they tell me that they need support from administration. They, they need the people uh, above them to understand the science too. Not just to say, oh, fine, go do it. But they want them to learn the science too and support them as they try to change the way they teach reading because it's, it's not easy, as many people have told me. When you started this work and you started looking at the national statistics on reading proficiency, I think you were startled by how low that number actually is. It's very low. It's startling. I don't know if most people realize that we've got like a third of fourth graders who can't even read on a 
basic level. Now, some people will quibble with what the meaning of basic and proficient is, but a third of fourth graders who can't read on a basic level? And I think what's happened in this country is that reading scores have been so low for so long that we've just kind of come to accept that that's the way things are. And I think one of the things that's startling when you really read this research is to recognize that there's no reason scores should be that low. I mean, most kids can learn to read at least at a basic level. There are demonstration studies that show this over and over again. There's no reason why we should have so many kids who are struggling readers. And it is not rare for kids to struggle with reading. For a lot of kids, this is actually a really hard thing to learn how to do. There are kids who take to it really easily and need very little instruction. But As I have learned more about reading and what struggling readers face, I find people in my life all the time who now tell me, oh, my kid was a struggling reader. I was a struggling reader. Struggling readers are everywhere. And we really shouldn't be in this situation. We'll get to the next question in just a second. But I want to ask you, uh, this may seem obvious, but uh, what's at stake for an individual, for a person who has trouble reading once they are done with school? What's the sort of lifetime impact of a person who has a problem with reading? Well, you know, it really begins earlier in school, right? So reading is just like the foundation upon which all other learning happens. I mean, if you are not good at reading, uh, kids fall behind in other subjects. Uh, There's really good research that shows that it leads to behavior problems. It can really cause anxiety and depression and stress in kids. So I think what happens is there's this downward spiral that starts to occur when kids don't get off to a good start in reading. Researchers actually describe it as the Matthew effect. So in reading, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And it happens right away. It starts in kindergarten. So some kids get off to a good start because they're being taught really well, or because it comes really easily, or because mom and dad are paying a tutor or teaching the kid at home. So the kids who get off to a good start in reading really start to they, they basically start to accumulate knowledge and vocabulary through reading, and they learn to read by reading. And kids who don't start falling further and further behind. And that manifests later in disengagement from middle school, behavior problems in high school, dropping out of high school, and even ending up in the criminal justice system. I mean, if you look at the criminal justice system, there is a you know, a disproportionate percentage of people in the juvenile justice system and in the adult prison population are struggling readers. So it is a big problem on an individual level, and it's a big problem for society and for all of us as taxpayers. So when you did find out that how low reading proficiency really is in the U.S., were you surprised that this isn't a more commonly reported on issue by, by journalists in the education space? Well, I was a journalist for 10 years and didn't report on it, so <laughs> I'm not not casting any stones here. I mean, I think it's true that this has been an undercovered issue of late, and I don't exactly know why that is. I think part of it is that we had a lot of wars about ratings in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and a lot of people kind of burned out on that issue, including journalists. I think we've kind of ended up in a little bit of a quagmire around reading because it's been treated by some journalists and others as a sort of he said, she said issue, like, well, there's this research that says this over here, and there's this research that says this over here. So I guess we'll just agree to disagree and go along our merry way. And what's happened in the meantime, I think, is that 
a lot of reading instruction really hasn't been informed by that cognitive science research. And there's like a massive body of evidence that really is accumulating in one direction in terms of what reading is all about and how kids learn how to do it. Um, so it's not really a, a he said, she said issue. It's it's akin to climate change, which is a, an analogy that others have made to me, um, that there's not really like sort of two sides here. There's an abundance of, of evidence uh, on sort of one that leads in one direction on this issue. I think one other thing about the journalism part of this is that I don't, I think the question of sort of what exactly kids are learning and like curriculum is really weedy and difficult and just hasn't been getting a lot of attention in general by journalists. I think we've been focusing on a lot of other really important things, um, college completion. I mean, a lot of the things that we've reported on in a at APM. Um, but I think this um, this tricky world of like exactly what kids are learning and how they're being taught and what's inside the curriculum, it's, it's really weedy and complicated. It's intimidating to get into. Reading is intimidating because there's a lot of landmines out there. There's a lot of places where you can kind of misunderstand or mess up. I have learned so much along the way. I've literally read thousands of pages of books and articles over the past few years. And I'm just incredibly grateful because I have the kind of job where I actually can do that. Uh, but not all reporters do. So I, I sort of this topic came along and I was able to dig in really deep and feel very grateful for that. And I think help to expose something that's a big problem that hasn't been getting a lot of attention recently. Let's hear from a listener who contacted us with a question by phone. She's going to use a few terms in here that may not be familiar to everybody. Uh, but that we have talked about in our reporting. Let's listen to her message, and then, Emily, you can address the terms that she brings up. Hi, this is Sarah, and I'm calling from Dublin, Ohio, and I'm wondering what the current mainstream definition of balanced literacy is. My working definition is really influenced by some of the powerhouse organizations and publishers of commercial balanced literacy products like Reading Recovery and LLI that have the three-queuing system really hardwired into their products. And recently, I heard a person say that she was a proponent of balanced literacy, but that she was an opponent of the three-queuing system. She specifically said that she really feels as though balanced literacy has been vilified by the proponents of the science of reading. So as a parent of a child with dyslexia, I'm really wondering if there are two separate balanced literacy camps using the same title. Well, that's an interesting question. As far as I know, there is no precise definition of the term balanced literacy. So for sure, uh, people must have different definitions of what that exactly means. Here's what I came away with in my reporting about that term. Balanced literacy is how a lot of schools describe their reading instruction right now. And this idea of like balance in reading instruction is really important. The science shows clearly, for example, that in early reading instruction, you want to have a balance of lessons designed to teach kids how to decode words and lessons that are designed to explicitly expand their oral vocabularies and their knowledge. Because knowing the meaning of lots of words and knowing lots of stuff is key when it comes to being able to comprehend what you read. Uh, the cognitive science also shows that you want a balance of explicitly teaching kids how to read words and then giving them time to practice what they've been taught. So that is reading instruction that's balanced in a way that lines up with the science. But this is not what I have found in the balanced literacy materials and the balanced literacy classrooms that I have seen or heard about. What I see in balanced literacy is a mix of a whole 
bunch of different ideas about how kids learn to read. Balanced literacy tends to include some phonics instruction. Uh, it tends to also mix in some whole word instruction. So this means giving kids uh, long lists of words to memorize. This whole word idea about reading has been around for a long time, for centuries actually. And it basically says that we learn to read by associating like the look of words with their meaning and storing them in our mind as as images or mental pictures. But it turns out this is not the way skilled readers store words in their minds. It, it's something I talk about in at a loss for words. Another idea that I see in a balanced literacy uh, is this idea that the three cueing idea that the caller mentioned. So this theory basically says that we don't read words by sounding them out or by memorizing them as visual images. Instead, the three cueing theory goes, we predict what the words in a sentence will be by using the context, by relying on the, the meaning of what we are reading. So in A Loss for Words, I explain this cueing idea and where it came from and how it is not supported by the cognitive science research. And I think that this cueing idea is still alive and well in lots of classrooms and curriculum materials that describe themselves or have described themselves as balanced literacy. So uh, does this mean that all people who use the term balanced literacy to describe their reading instruction are teaching this three cueing idea? Maybe not. But what I have found is that this cueing idea of reading is foundational. It's a foundational idea in a lot of balanced literacy materials. It's the theory of how reading works and how kids learn to be readers in those materials. And it's a theory that is not supported by scientific evidence. And I think it's important for schools and teachers and people who buy curriculum to understand this, that when they're buying materials, when they're using materials that teach children to use this cueing system to read words, they are buying an idea that has been debunked by cognitive science. So we had a couple of listeners who emailed with questions, Emily, about what to do if their schools or their districts are not teaching reading in ways that do line up with the scientific evidence on reading. So one parent wrote and asked, what tools are available to convince districts to align their K-12 literacy curriculum with best practices? How can we audit what our school district does now? This is a great question. And what I have learned as a reporter is that it can actually be a challenge to figure out what a school is using to teach reading, how they're actually doing it. They don't necessarily put this information on their websites. They don't necessarily make it easily accessible to parents and the public. Uh, they may have a list of like approved materials or curricula, but that doesn't mean the teachers are actually using those materials. Surveys that are done of teachers uh, across the country show that a remarkable number of them, the vast majority actually, basically design a lot of their own curriculum. Uh, they, they make their own materials. Some of them say they don't even have uh, curriculum materials. So there are kind of like a million flowers blooming out there, and the system is actually kind of designed that way. There's like a long and deep tradition of local control in American education, local control in terms of what school districts do, what individual schools do, and in some cases, even what individual teachers do. And efforts to dictate what schools can teach uh, can be really challenging, unwelcome, and actually even illegal. And they often uh, lead to some unintended consequences because I think one of the things that I have learned as a reporter is that at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a perfect curriculum. I mean, curriculum is an important part of getting it right, but there's not like a program or a set of materials that's going to teach every child how to read. Every approach has flaws and needs continuous improvement and as for this question of getting the basic information about what schools actually teach, I've actually talked to a number of parents and parent groups who've started filing freedom of information requests to try to get that information from their school districts if they can't find it. 
Um, and then as for the question of like, so you find out everything they're using to teach reading and then you want to know, does this curriculum, as the listener asked, align with best practices? Well, you know what? That's really tricky <laughs> because every approach and curriculum claims to be research based. You can't sell it if it's not research based. And I think the key here goes back to what I said earlier about knowledge that I think parents and educators probably would be uh, well uh, advised to know that there is a huge body of scientific evidence on reading that they might know nothing about. I think they need to understand the basics of that research. I don't think everyone needs to become an expert on it, but there are lots of good freely available articles that explain the science in a pretty um, user-friendly way. We, we have some of those on our website already, and I can post a few more on the episode page for this particular podcast. And then I think, you know, uh, parents and teachers and administrators need to look carefully at what they're using to teach reading and see if they line up with the basics of what that science says. Um, it's also tricky because there are studies out there that assess the efficacy of particular programs and products. And some of this research is really good and this is really valuable information. But it may not be the end all and be all of deciding whether a program actually, you know, works. Uh, there are instructional programs that have been shown to be effective by some measures, but which are not conceptually consistent. This is a term that a researcher used. They're not conceptually consistent with the scientific research on how reading works. There's actually a really interesting article about this issue by an Australian researcher that I can also post on our on our website on the podcast episode page. And that's apmreports.org once again. Let's go to an, another question that we got via telephone. This is about the school district you featured in your 2018 documentary, Hard Words. Hey, I just wanted to leave a question for the Educate podcast. I'd love to know from Emily Hanford the... Um, the data from the Bethlehem School that was so impressive in hard words and all the work that they did, I'd love to know where the data is um, taking them a few years later from all of that work. We want to use that to encourage teachers to do the real work of teaching reading. Thank you. Bye. If you haven't heard hard words, the, the basic story that she is talking about there of the Bethlehem School District is this. Uh, a few years ago, it was 2015, the chief academic officer there decided that the district needed to do something about reading. So only about half of the third graders in the district were reading proficiently, which that might sound low. But as we were talking about before, it's not actually unusual for a school district in America to have a half or more of their kids not reading proficiently. Basically, this chief academic officer ended up discovering all of this evidence on reading, the, the reading science, and he helped the entire school system launch this massive effort to teach all of the principals and then all of the teachers the science of reading. They were just at the beginning of this effort when I visited back in 2018, but they were already seeing some pretty uh, nice gains in how kindergartners were doing on tests of their early reading skills. So I recently wrote to Jack Silva, who's the chief academic officer in Bethlehem, and I asked for an update on their progress. And here's what he told me. So they're now uh, beginning year four of their effort to train all the teachers and align their reading instruction to the science. And they're up to nearly 80% of their second graders on grade level in reading. So the goal in Bethlehem is to get to 90% of kids on grade level by the end of third grade. Jack Silva told me he is confident, that's a quote, he's confident that they're on track to get there. One other thing that Jack Silva pointed out to me in the data that he is especially proud of, in Bethlehem, they're seeing very little correlation between family income and reading success. 
In other words, there's not a big gap between the reading performance of kids who come from low-income families and kids from higher-income families like you often see with reading scores. So what they're doing in Bethlehem seems to be closing the achievement gap when it comes to reading. Wow, that's interesting. So what's next on this topic, Emily? What questions are you still pursuing? Well, we haven't quite figured that one out yet, but I still have a ton of questions about early reading instruction and kind of how we ended up where we are today and how to get out of it. I would really like to follow this issue into the upper grades, like what's up with struggling readers in middle school and in high school? Uh, How can they be helped? What can teachers do? I get a lot of emails from middle school and high school teachers who recognize that their students are really struggling with reading and they don't know what to do about it. Uh, I would like to follow this issue into the criminal justice system, uh, see what's being done there to help struggling readers. I'd really like to understand better how all of this plays out in terms of family income. What what I talked about at the beginning, that getting help uh, for a struggling reader is a rich man's game. Because what's happening to all those other kids who don't have parents who can come up with money for tutors in private schools? I'd really like to examine the ways that uh, problems with early reading instruction end up creating and like exacerbating achievement and opportunity gaps, which we spend so much time talking about in the United States. And I think early reading instruction is really the root. It's the place we need to be looking to address these issues. Emily Hamford is the senior education correspondent here at APM Reports. Emily, thank you so much. Yeah, you're welcome. That's it for this episode. Tell us what you think. We're on Twitter and Facebook at Educate Podcast, where you can send us a note to contact at apmreports.org. Emily's audio documentaries about reading, along with more information on the reading science and her list of sources, is available at apmreports.org reading. Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin produced the podcast. This episode was mixed by Johnny Vince Evans. We partner with the Heckinger Report, which is a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>